Henry David Thoreau was an eccentric 19th century author, naturalist, and philosopher. He decided at one point in his life to spend two years, two months, and two days in a cabin that he built with his own hands outside of Concord, Massachusetts. He chronicles his experiences and the reflection upon those experiences in a book that he published in 1844 by the, 1854 by the name of Walden. And in that book, he gives us the rationale for his experience, for going out into the woods. This is what he writes. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately. To front not only the essential facts of life, only the essential facts of life, and to see if I could not learn what it had to teach. And not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. I did not wish to live what was not life. Living is so dear. Nor did I wish to practice resignation unless it was quite necessary. I wanted to live deep and suck out all the marrow of life. To live so sturdily and Spartan-like as to put to rout all that was not life. To cut a broad swath and shave close. To drive life into a corner and reduce it to its lowest terms. And if it proved to be mean, why then to get the whole and genuine meanness of it and to publish its meanness to the world. Or, if it were sublime, to know it by experience and be able to give a true account of it in my next excursion. Thoreau very commendably wanted to live life to the full. He didn't want to miss anything that life had to offer. He wanted to experience its richness to its deepest levels so that when he came to die, he could die without regret. That's commendable in many ways. But Thoreau did die on May 6, 1862. And he died after a very long, difficult, lingering bout with tuberculosis. And while he was on his deathbed, his Aunt Louisa asked him if he had made his peace with God. And at the age of 44, Thoreau said, I didn't know we had ever quarreled. Now those words were no doubt spoken with sincerity by this philosopher. But they reflect a willful ignorance that has tragically plagued humanity since the sin of our first parents. When Adam and Eve turned from their creator, they brought a quarrel upon themselves and all humanity with God. Now I call Thoreau's not recognition of that ignorance because it reflects a lack of knowledge of the way that things actually are. The Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that because of sin, everyone in this world by nature is a child of wrath. God's wrath. The Apostle Paul in Romans 5.10 says that we are all by nature enemies of God. Well, that's not the way it was at the beginning. When God originally created Adam and Eve in His own image, He created them in a right relationship with Himself. They enjoyed fellowship together. But when sin came, 
when they rebelled against God, a separation occurred between God the Creator and mankind, His creatures. And so we find ourselves by nature today at odds with our Lord. Failure to acknowledge that is to be ill-informed. It's ignorance. But I said that it's willful ignorance. That is, it's ignorance that doesn't have to remain ignorant. Romans 1, 18-20 causes me to call it willful because there Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. So God says, no matter what anybody else in the world might think, that He has revealed Himself clearly enough in the created order that everyone ought to recognize that there is a God and that He's great, He's almighty, He's righteous, and they are not. So, ignorance of being separated from God is willful. It is turning away from that which God, according to His Word, has made plain. Yes, you have quarreled with God. And so have I. Sin has placed us in jeopardy and exposed us to His wrath. And left to ourselves, there's no one in this world who could ever hope to have peace with God. But the good news is that God's given us in the Bible is that God has not left us to ourselves. God has done something about this enmity that exists between Him as Creator and mankind as His creatures. In our weakness and helplessness, God has come to us. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, He's provided salvation for us. He's provided a way that we might be restored to Him, have sin forgiven, and experience genuine peace with God. Through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God now reconciles sinners like you and me to Himself. That truth is what empowered the Apostle Paul to live the way that he lived in the first century as a minister of Jesus Christ. And that truth is the very foundation of this church that follows in that apostolic tradition. It's what we live for. It's what we stand for. It's the one message that we have to declare to this whole world that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. That's what we're going to see this morning in our text as we return to our study of 2 Corinthians and find ourselves in the middle of chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, all the way through the first couple of verses of chapter 6, is going to be the text for our study today. If you're using one of the Bibles that's found in the chair in front of you, that's on page 966. And I encourage you to take a copy of God's Word, open up to 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 11, and follow along, because I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to refer back to it. We're just going to study it. We're just going to look 
at these words from this portion of Scripture this morning to hear what it is that God has to say to us about this incredible work that Jesus has done that results in people like us coming into a right relationship with our Creator. So hear the Word of God as I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. Paul writes, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let me remind you that Paul writes this letter of 2 Corinthians in large part to respond to accusations that have been made against him by false apostles. After he left Corinth, a church that he planted where he stayed for 18 months, lived with the people there, there were false teachers that came to Corinth, infiltrated the church, and began to make accusations about Paul, seeking to undermine his authority in the church in order to bolster their own authority in the church. So they pointed to Paul's unimpressiveness. They pointed to all the troubles that he had. Seems like he was always getting into trouble. He always had hardships, and he tells us about many of those troubles elsewhere in this letter. And these false apostles pointed to those things, and in essence they said, does that look like a ministry that is blessed of God? I mean, doesn't he look like a colossal failure on so many points? And they compared themselves to him, counting their own accomplishments, their own apparent blessings, and tried to make themselves look impressive and worthy of the trust and devotion of the Corinthians at the expense of the Apostle Paul. In response, as we've already seen in the study of the first 
about four and a half chapters of this letter, Paul shows that these interlopers didn't understand God. They didn't understand Jesus. And they certainly didn't understand the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ in the way of salvation. Because God, who is majestic, displays His majesty and meekness. And Jesus, who has been exalted to glory, entered into that glory through suffering. And the good news of salvation that Jesus gives to people like you and me includes a call to take up your cross and follow Him by dying daily. These false teachers knew nothing of that. Because of this, Paul's ministry as an apostle of Jesus is not something that he could shape and design according to his own whims. He had received this ministry, as he tells us in chapter 4, verse 1, by the mercy of God. He, he says further that it is a ministry of righteousness. It is a ministry, he says, that has come by the Spirit. It makes him a minister of the new covenant. So Paul, as an apostle, saw himself entrusted with the responsibility of making this good news of Jesus Christ known. That was his ministry. He wasn't free to design it. He wasn't free to carry it out any old way that he saw fit. In verse 18 of this fifth chapter that I just read, Paul calls this ministry the ministry of reconciliation. Five times in verses 18 through 20, he uses the word reconciliation or reconcile in one form or another. And in doing so, he highlights the chief burden of gospel ministry. It is to make Jesus Christ known so that people can live at true peace with God through Jesus Christ. To carry out such a ministry is hard. It is costly. It will entail difficulties, but it is worth it. To see God glorified and people satisfied in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is worth every trial, every difficulty, every hardship that the Apostle Paul had to suffer. The text before us today helps us to understand why this is so. In the verses that I read, Paul explains his motivation. What is it? That motivated him. And what are the actual results of this ministry of reconciliation? Those are two questions that I want us to ask of this text as we walk through it together to hear Paul explain his motivation and the consequences of the ministry of reconciliation. So first of all, what motivates the ministry of reconciliation? What was it that was behind Paul's doing what he did that looked so reprehensible to these false apostles that they pointed to it and said, God can't be blessing that. Well, you know, motivation is important. If you understand motivation, it sometimes gives great clarity to actions that otherwise would be misunderstood. So if you're in a store, for example, and you see a man suddenly drop everything and he starts running toward the exit and he knocks over displays and he bumps into people and he's not talking, not giving any excuse, he's just heading out the door, you might initially think, how rude. Or, or maybe he's a thief, maybe he's running because he's stolen something, or maybe he's in trouble. 
But if you were to learn that he just got a phone call saying that his five-year-old daughter had been in a serious accident, she was dying and on her way to the hospital, changes everything, doesn't it? You suddenly see why he does what he does, and it is in a completely different light. Well, Paul begins to explain why he did what he did as an apostle of Jesus Christ in these first few verses, verses 11 through 15. And he gives us basically two overarching motivations. The first is the fear of the Lord. Verse 11 begins, therefore, so it points us back to what he just wrote. And in verse 10, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, Paul said this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says, I was motivated, I am motivated by the future certainty of a coming day of judgment. A day when I will be called to give account before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Judgment not to determine whether or not he's saved and right with God. But judgment where he'll be called upon to speak about how he has lived as a saved person. And he has a healthy fear of the Lord as he thinks about that day. The Lord will be on his judgment seat. It will be an incredible scene. We will all be brought to appear. He's talking about Christians when he says that in verse 10. Every child of God, everyone who's trusting Jesus will be called on that account, on that day to give an account. Not to see if we've been good enough to earn God's favor. You can't do that. God's favor was granted to you because Jesus was good enough in what He did in His life, death, and resurrection. And through faith in Him, God accepts you. But on that day, brothers and sisters, we're going to be called to give an account for the stewardship of the grace of God that has been entrusted to us. Do you ever think about that? I mean, as a Christian, do you ever think about it when you're making a choice? Do you ever think about the fact that one day you'll stand before Christ and you'll give an account for this choice? This choice that you have as one who has been bought and paid for by his life, death, and resurrection. Paul not only thought about it, in thinking about it, he was motivated by it. And he tells us that the reality of that coming day of giving an account caused him to persuade others. Do you see that word? I persuade others knowing the fear of the Lord. What does he mean by persuading others? Well, he's not talking about manipulating people. He's not talking about using rhetorical tricks. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, you'll see that he reminds the Corinthians he renounced all that when he first went to Corinth. He didn't come in persuasive words of human wisdom. In other words, he didn't come with highfalutin philosophical language and with word games and mind games. He renounced all of that. But that does not mean that he did not seek to persuade them. He wanted to convince them of truth. And we see in the book of Acts, Paul regularly did this. When he would go into a town, he would begin to reason with the Jews, very often in the synagogue, and try to persuade them to trust Jesus Christ as Messiah. In fact, that's what he did when he first showed up in Corinth. 
in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Luke tells us when he got to Corinth, he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Same word that Paul now uses of himself here in our text. It's right to try to persuade people to the truth. To try to convince them. To try to help them to see what the Bible actually teaches. Now he goes on to say in verse 11 that he didn't have any need to persuade God. And he says, I shouldn't have had a need to try to persuade you Corinthians either. He writes there, but we are what we are is known to God. No need to try to persuade Him. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. You know, in other words, though you're letting these guys fill you with thoughts about me that are not right, I hope that deep down you'll remember I lived with you, I taught you, I reasoned with you, I explained the gospel to you. I counseled with you. I gave my life to see you established in Christ. He said, it should be known to you what I am. So in verse 12, he says, I'm not commending myself to you again. And I think probably we should read that. I'm not really commending myself to you again. Rather, he's reminding them of what they should have already known about him. Why? So that he doesn't have to stand by himself in response to these false apostles. But that they themselves can boast about him. And as he puts it, answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. His critics in Corinth were all about outward appearance. Why, let's just look. Let's compare our accomplishments to his accomplishments. Let's compare our Lives to his life. Which life would you rather have? Life being beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, hated. Or look at how well respected we are. Outward appearance. Paul knows that if they continue to measure by outward appearance alone, then they'll continue to be able to raise question marks about his integrity as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he also knows that God is aware of what's in the heart and these Corinthians have had opportunity to know what was in Paul's heart by virtue of his life with them. These outward appearances would never compare to the heart motivations, the heart intentions of a man like the Apostle Paul. And so his critics would never want to go there. They just want to measure on the superficial, observable realities. In verse 13, he summarizes what it means to be motivated by the fear of the Lord. He says, for if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. Evidently, this is in response to part of the accusations made made against him. Paul knows that being motivated by the fear of the Lord can cause him to look at times like he's out of his mind. Making choices that make no sense otherwise, unless there is a God in heaven who's given up his son, who shed his blood and was raised from the dead for us, who's ascended into heaven before whose throne one day we will stand to give an account. And knowing the fear of the Lord caused Paul at times to make decisions that looked like he was out of his mind. And he says, I do it with the fear of the Lord. I do it with a view to God. But he also made decisions that looked like he was in his right mind as he taught and he persuaded people. He said, I did that for your sake. I want you to know the truth. And so Paul is saying, man, I am motivated to live for the honor of the Lord so that on the day of judgment, I can give an account 
that I did what I did for the sake of God's glory. I did what I did for the welfare of God's people. So Paul makes it very clear that first of all, he's motivated by the fear of the Lord. But he goes on in verses 15 and 16 to speak of what we might even think is an ironic another motivation. The love of the Lord. The love of the Lord. Verses 15 and 16, he says that it is the love of Christ that controls him. You see that in verse 14? When he says love of Christ, he's not speaking of his love for Christ. He's speaking of Christ's love for him. Knowing he's loved by Christ. This word control is a very interesting word too. It means to press down. It means to hold together. Some modern translations render it to be constrained. What Paul is saying is that he was so blown away by being loved the way that Christ loved him that he could not help but live his life for Jesus. He just, he just couldn't avoid it because he'd never known love like this. He never got over being loved by Jesus. I wonder, brothers and sisters, have you ever gotten over it? Sometimes the love of Christ for you seem distant, unreal, not weighty, not significant. When those seasons come to us, what we need to do is ask God to make fresh in our thinking and our experience what it means to say honestly, God loves me. If you're a Christian, do you remember the first time, the first days when that truth dawned on you? I mean, maybe you heard it from your young life all the way up and you may have sung songs about Jesus loving you and God loves you and you knew that as point of truth but do you remember when it dawned on you have you ever had that where you are aware of how unlovely you are how justified God would be if he just let us go on in our sin and yet he didn't he came and he rescued us and he rescued us at a great cost and that cost is giving up his own son and do you remember what it was like to, remember, to recognize that, that God has loved you so much that He gave His Son for you? It's overwhelming. And when the reality, the weightiness of being loved like that grows cold, distant, then we need to pray and come back to the Word and meditate on these things that are true and ask God to rekindle that in us. Because that kind of love motivates. It shapes. That's what Paul is talking about here. He never got over it. Christ's love, Paul goes on to show, is demonstrated by what he did. Look at verse 14 again. In the middle of that verse, he says, because we've concluded this. In other words, careful reflection. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died 
and was raised. Christ died for all. That's who he's talking about. He died instead of all. He died in the place of all. What Paul is referring to here is Jesus Christ voluntarily substituting His life for our lives. So that instead of us dying the death we should die, He dies the death we should die. He says He did it for all. Who is that? For all. It's the same people that He's talking about through the rest of this verse and the next verse. These people, as He refers to them, who all have died. Therefore, all have died. Christ died for all. Therefore, all have died. Died with Christ. That's language that is only used in the Bible for believers, for people who have come to understand what God has done for sinners and bowed to Jesus Christ as Lord. So, here's the point. Jesus is the only Savior the world has. He's the only way that people who are estranged from God can ever be made right with God. When He came into the world and laid down His life on the cross, He died as a substitute. He willingly put Himself in the place of sinners so that we would not have to die in our sins and for our sins. Paul elaborates this in other places that he writes to churches, especially to the church of Rome. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 6, verse 8, he elaborates this understanding that the death of Christ has a twofold significance. As believers, we know Jesus died for us. And we also know that when He died, we died with Him. So if you're a Christian... If you're trusting Jesus, you can be sure that what took place 2,000 years ago was for your salvation. You can see the cross of Jesus knowing that it has significance for you. He died in your place taking the sin that you bore, the sin that you deserve to pay for, the wrath of God against your sin upon Himself. And when He died, you died. On the cross... If you're a Christian, what happened 2,000 years ago happened to you. So it is real that you have had your sins paid for. Your life has been judged by God. Guilty. Damnable. Punishable. And in Jesus Christ, all of the reasons for that have been taken away. You've died with Him. Then to make sure that we don't miss this point, in verse 15, Paul spells out the significance of this sacrificial love of Christ for people more specifically. He says he did this so that we might live for him, not for ourselves. Think about this. Listen to the way he puts it. And he died for all that those who live, Christians, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus purchased us on the cross. If you're a Christian, you have been bought and paid for by Jesus. He suffered, He bled, He died to bring us to God, and with that, He has set us free so that we no longer have to be slaves to serving ourselves, living for ourselves. 
We are free now to live for the one who laid down his life for us and was raised from the dead for us. You see how contrary the way of Christ is to selfishness? Every time we discover new avenues of selfishness in our lives, brothers and sisters, we need to bring this truth back to bear on it and realize we have been purchased by Jesus so that we don't live for ourselves. We live for Him because of what He's done for us. It was not the way that Paul lived to try to make his life easy, comfortable. It was not the way that any follower of Jesus Christ should live to simply determine what best suits us, but rather every follower of Jesus Christ should be so overwhelmed by the love of Christ that we seek to live for Him and ask the question, what is it that would please my Lord? Brothers and sisters, again, if this has grown cold to you, if it seems distant from you, I encourage you to, to go again in your mind's eye, taking the Scripture and what it says to us about the death of Jesus on the cross and cause yourself to focus upon that death. Not just the physical dimensions of it, but to think about what was going on there. To think about Him bearing wrath that you deserve. To think about Him carrying it away. To think about Him securing an eternal standing with God that will forever be secure. Think about forgiveness of sins. Think about new life. Think about all of the blessings that come with Christ. And as you consider that being purchased, worked out on the cross, just meditate on it and say, that's for me. Particularly for me. That's what Paul did. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he speaks about how Jesus Christ loved him and gave his life for him. Specifically, he knew then that he belonged to Christ. Well, that's the motivation that Paul spells out for this ministry of reconciliation. Fear of God, being loved by Jesus Christ. What are the consequences of this ministry? Well, he spells that out beginning in the latter part of this chapter, verse 16, and he goes all the way down through verse 2 of chapter 6. And there are three things specifically that we see are the consequences of the ministry of reconciliation. First of all, there's a new perspective. Secondly, there's a new creation. Thirdly, we get a new job. Each one of these is set off by the word therefore in our text. You see it in verse 16, verse 17, verse 20. So let's look at it. What does it mean to have a new perspective? Paul says, being reconciled, being given this ministry of reconciliation, it changes my point of view. From now on, verse 16, therefore we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. One consequence of being reconciled to God through what Jesus Christ has done for us in His death on the cross is that in living for Him, we no longer evaluate people, think about people according to the flesh. What's Paul mean by that? We don't think about people merely on the basis of what our senses can assess. Merely on the basis of what we see and know outwardly about Him. 
Now, it's interesting because this is exactly what Paul's critics were doing of him. Looking at his life, looking at his difficulties, looking at his resume, and saying, blessed of God? Are you for real? You'd follow him? You'd listen to him? Paul admits, ironically, that he used to be just like them. That's the way he used to evaluate. That's the way he used to make judgments too. He says that he once regarded Christ according to the flesh. What does he mean by that? He's talking about his life before he became a Christian. If you know anything about Paul, you know that he was a rising star in first century Judaism. In fact, he was so zealous for the way of the Judaistic religion of his day that he actually got authority to hunt down Christians, to persecute Christians, had them arrested, thrown in prison, saw them being stoned, participated in that he murdered people. Why? Because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And what was he thinking about Jesus? He's a, he's a guy that calls himself the Son of God. And yet he was crucified on a cross. Son of God dying on a cross? I don't think so. Not Yahweh. That would never happen. So he looks at the outward appearances regarding Jesus' life and death, and he says, this guy is a blasphemer. He and his followers must be stopped. He regarded Christ according to the flesh until, Acts 9 tells us, the risen Christ appeared to him, called him, revealed himself to Paul, and changed his life. And when he changed his life, he changed his perspective so that Paul began to evaluate things in a completely different way. When you come to know Jesus Christ savingly, you get a new perspective. You get a new basis on which to make judgments and evaluations about life, about people. Suddenly, social status, wealth, race, education, political power, family name, those things which are typical measures of standard, standard of measurements in the world, they no longer matter. Now what matters is, is this person rightly related to God through faith in Jesus Christ or not? That's the most significant thing in a person's life about a person. Is he living for Jesus? Is he following Jesus? Is he taking full advantage of the grace of God in Jesus Christ? This ministry of reconciliation gives us a new perspective. But Paul says it also gives us a new creation. Look at verses 17, 18, and 19. Verse 17 is one of the most amazing hope-filled verses in all the Bible. Look at this verse. Listen to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To be in Christ, Paul says, is to be a new creation. What does he mean by being in Christ? That's just Paul's shorthand way of saying being a Christian. To be in Christ is to be united to Christ. It's to belong to Christ. It's that which you have happened through faith. You trust Him and through faith you become united to Him. And if you are in Christ, Paul says, then you are a new creature. Not just a repaired person. Not just a patched up person. You become a new person. 
You're made new. Old passes away. All things become new. This is, this is beautifully demonstrated in the ordinance that Jesus has given to His church that we call baptism. Baptism. Whenever a person is baptized, there's a visual, dramatic proclamation of this truth. Here's John. He once lived evaluating Jesus according to the flesh. He didn't trust Jesus. He wasn't following Jesus. He didn't have this orientation toward Jesus that Jesus died for his sins. He didn't live for Jesus. But then Jesus revealed himself. And John became a new creature. A new person. So that now he does trust Jesus. He does love Jesus. He does want to live for Jesus. He wants to submit himself to the authority of Christ. And everything Christ says in the Bible. And so he's baptized. Here's the old John picture. Under the water. Picture of death. Raised from the dead. New John. New creation. New person. Not John 2.0. New person. Renovated. There's some of you here this morning. That may sound like a pipe dream to you. You may be thinking, yeah, my life has been so difficult. So many twists and turns. So many dead ends. So many things that I wish I could do over. I hate and ever experienced. And you're just trying to hang on. and Maybe hoping that you'll make it. Friend, hear what God says. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Don't you want to become new? Don't you want to have this reality identify you so that you can live the rest of your days not as a better version of your old self, but as a new creation. It's available to you in Christ. Trust Christ. Believe what this text is saying today. Turn away from your sin. Confess to God. Admit all that's true. And take Him at His word. And call Jesus Lord. You'll be in Christ. And you will begin to experience this new creation. Look at the way Paul elaborates it. He says the old is gone. Passed away. The new has come. The, the way he puts that in the original language means the old is gone forever. Passed away forever. And the new has come to stay forever. It will never be diminished. How is this possible? I mean, you might think, yeah, Pastor, I've turned over so many new leaves. You wouldn't believe it. I've tried. I've been down this path. I've attempted that. Nothing has worked. How is this possible? It's just not in me to change. You see what Paul says next? <laughs> all this is of God. It's all from God. It's His work, not ours. When I look at myself, I look at you, and I see everything that God calls us to be, that He sets before us as the possibilities in this world. I look at my strength, I look at your strength, I say, yeah, I don't have much hope. You know, I understand you're not having much hope when you look in the mirror. 
But Paul says, don't look in the mirror. It's from God. God does this. The God who raises dead people does this. And He is able to make new creations out of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. He, through Christ, Paul says, reconciles us to Himself. And then, in verse 19, in order to make sure that we don't miss His point, He restates it. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God makes people into new creations, and He does it based upon the accomplishments of Jesus. It's all from God. He's not left anything up to you. The becoming a new creation doesn't depend upon your strength, your abilities, your efforts. God has done it. He's accomplished it once for all. Jesus has successfully fulfilled the mission of bringing about new creation. And God sets Jesus before you and says, trust Him. Believe Him. Receive this. Don't you want that? Don't you want that? Why wouldn't you want that? It's what God sets before us. He says that Jesus has done everything necessary so our trespasses, our sins, won't be counted against us. This is what Paul is referring to back up in verses 14 and 15. One died for all. He died to take away sin. He died to pay the penalty of his sin, of our sin. He substituted his life for ours. He paid for our sins so our sins will never, ever again be counted against us. And here's the sad, important reality we must understand to get this point. All of us here have quarreled with God. By nature, you come into the world in sin. No one is good enough for God in his or her own efforts. There's none righteous, the Bible says, no, not one. Our sin has left us estranged from God, enemies to God. And the only way that we can be removed from His enemy list is by being reconciled to Him. And the only place where reconciliation with God is provided is in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is set before you today. Come to Him. Trust Him. Believe Him. Because in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. You know, maybe some of you have lived your life and you've never really understood your need to be reconciled to God. Well, do you see that the whole idea of God accomplishing reconciliation presupposes necessarily the need of reconciliation? And if you've never sensed your need, then ask God to show you the truth. To deliver you from ignorance about the reality of your standing before your Creator, so that coming to terms with that, you might also then look to Him for what He's provided to bring people like you into a right relationship with Himself. Brothers and sisters, what Paul writes here is true for every one of us. If you're in Christ, this is your story. You're a new creation. God has recreated you so that you no longer have to live for yourself. You can live for Him who loved you and for your sake died for you. You know, but maybe you're here and you've been familiar with the Christian life long enough that you have some understanding of it, but you've always thought it's just beyond your reach. You really can't live the way you know you should live if you're going to call yourself a Christian. And so 
You don't want to be a hypocrite. So you think, well, I just don't think I can do it. I just don't think I'm good enough. I don't think I have what it takes. I don't think I will be strong enough. I'm afraid if I start that I'll quit. All those thoughts may be going through your head. But friend, here's the good news. God doesn't call you to clean up your act. He doesn't call you to try your best. It's all from God. He changes people. And there's a lot of testimonies sitting around you today of people who've been changed. And if you just ask them, they'll tell you, yeah, if it were up to me, my life would be a colossal mess. There'd be no hope for me. But God came to me. God had grace on me. Do you believe that God keeps his word? Do you believe he's honest? What his word today says, it's all from him. He makes people into new creations. So ask him. Pray to him. Take him at his word. Believe the good news of Jesus Christ who came into the world to reconcile sinners to God. Well, along with a new perspective and a new creation, the ministry of reconciliation, Paul says, gives us a new job. Paul's already indicated some of this in verse 18 and verse 19. He says he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, he entrusted, entrusting to us the message of of reconciliation but beginning in verse 20 he makes this more graphically apparent and he quotes from Isaiah chapter 49 verse 8 to support his point look at verse 20 he says we are ambassadors for Christ now what is an ambassador what is an ambassador an ambassador is a representative of one kingdom to another kingdom he goes to live in a foreign kingdom to represent the interests of his home kingdom and what the scripture says to us here, brothers and sisters, is as Christians, God has given us a job, a new job. Doesn't matter what your vocation is. Doesn't matter how you spend most of your time. If you're a Christian, you're called to represent the kingdom of Jesus Christ. No matter where you live, what you do, how you spend your time, what your job is. You're called upon to carry the message of your king in his behalf. To speak the message that he gives. To speak in the authority that belongs to him as if he himself were speaking through us. Did you see the way Paul puts it? God making his appeal through us. And to speak urgently in behalf of our king. Pleadingly. Look at this phrase. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. You know what that word implore means? It means to plead. It means to beg. I want you to think a moment what Paul is saying here. God speaking through us calls upon us to plead with people. To plead what? Join the church. Get baptized. No. Quit sinning. No. Be reconciled to God. Receive this incredible gift that Jesus Christ came to accomplish for the sake of anyone and everyone who trusted Him. 
Be reconciled to God. That's our message. And it's a message that's to be delivered not nonchalantly, not indifferently, pleadingly, urgently. Verse 21, we're given the basis of our appeal for this message. For our sake, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. This is an incredible statement, summary of how this offer to be reconciled to God can be legitimately extended. God sent Jesus into the world. And He made Jesus, who was sinless in His life on earth, to be sin. Sin credited to His account. He didn't sin personally, but He took up sin representatively when He stood in the place of sinners so that in Christ we might be counted the righteousness of God. You see, there's an exchange that takes place. Jesus, the righteous one, comes, stands in the place of sinners. We sinners, through faith in Jesus, come and stand in the place of His righteousness so that what we have, He gets. What He earned, we get. And this exchange takes place, and it takes place through faith. Paul says, that's the basis of it. It's not your doing, it's not your goodness, it's not your determination, not your efforts. It's what God has done. It's all from God. So be reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done. It's been done. It's been done. We're called upon to proclaim that. He says, we work with our King, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, as we make these appeals. Think about this. God, working together with God, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I helped you. He's quoting Isaiah 49 there. Behold, now's the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We join God in His work. Brothers and sisters, do you see yourself like this? Is this your sense of self-identity? That God works with us as His ambassador in this world to make Jesus Christ known? If we think rightly about this, it will impact the way you work where you work, what jobs you take, what jobs you turn down, where you live, where you don't live. We have stories in this congregation, people here today, stories in this congregation of people who have made choices where they live, jobs to take, jobs to give up for the sake of representing Jesus Christ as His ambassador in this world. It's great. And that's the way it ought to be. It's the most important thing about us to see ourselves called by God to represent Christ in the world. This is the nature of faithful gospel ministry. A ministry of reconciliation motivated by the fear of the Lord being loved by Jesus Christ. Resulting in new perspective, new creation, new job. This is amazing to me. And if you are an unbeliever here today, I want to hear you to hear us say, we are delighted you're here. We're so glad you're here. We don't think it's an accident that you're here. But do you see what the Bible says about you, what God has done. He sent His Son into the world for people like you. Jesus came to take the place of sinners like you. He came so that your sin against God that deserves damnation could be borne by Him on the cross 
And His righteousness that God requires of you and me, that He earned, can be granted to you. And it happens through faith. And God tells Christians here, as ambassadors of His, to plead with you to be reconciled. God says, as a preacher of the Gospel, He commands me to plead with you to be reconciled to God. Young people, children, some of you have heard this hundreds or thousands of times. Why will you not be reconciled to God? Why would you keep God at arm's length? Why would you not right now where you are take God at His word and say, God, I believe you. I've sinned against you. I take Jesus Christ to be my righteousness and trust Him to be my Savior from sin. Be reconciled to your Creator. He brought you here today to consider this text, to hear this message. And He sets before you this incredible invitation. Be reconciled. Friend, maybe this is your first time here. Maybe you've been here before. And you have never bowed to Christ. You've never settled your relationship to God by trusting Jesus Christ. Today, God pleading through me. God says, I want you. I want you. I gave up my son so that you can be made right with him. Are you going to ignore that kind of expression of love and mercy from your creator? Trust him today. Believe him. Take him in his word. Be reconciled to God. And start living for the one who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your great grace and love. Thank you for your love and mercy for sinners. Speak in ways that only you can speak today. And reveal Jesus Christ in us. We pray in his name. Amen.